Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we earnestly ask of you as we reopen your word, Lord, let us not hear it in vain. As it is proclaimed, as it is taught, we pray that it will be done so by the convincing power of the blessed spirit and that it will be thereby heard in the power of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, Father, we pray, give us grace to take heed to the things that will be spoken to us by the truth of your word today. And may we be even more sanctified by the truth of your word and thus brought into greater conformity to the image of your eternal Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. I invite you to take the word of God and let's open up to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. As we will consider this morning what I have entitled, Judging with Right Judgment. Judging with Right Judgment. John chapter 7. We're going to start reading at verse 14 to verse 24. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And so reads the infallible, inerrant, certain, sufficient word of the living, eternal God. One of the most common flaws in fallen human nature is to make rash, rapid judgments of either people or circumstances without having all the facts in front of us. These kinds of judgments are always superficial since they look only at what's on the surface without considering that there's more here than meets the eye. In other words... Not everything appears as it seems. The truth is, appearances can deceive us. And so until we have all the facts, we should never rush off and make a final 
judgment. Well, as we turn to John chapter 7, verses 14 through 24, we encounter an instance in the life of our Lord where he faced head-on the hasty, ill-conceived judgments of the Jewish leaders who condemned his actions and disputed his credentials by nothing more than surface-level assumptions. But how did Jesus respond to this? What did he say to counter the impetuous judgments made by the Jewish leaders? Well, answering these questions will be the focus of our study this morning as we look at two specific things the Jewish leaders judged wrongly about the Lord Jesus Christ and the way in which Jesus responded to them. We will see first at how they disputed his authority as a teacher of God's word. And then second, we'll look at how they disputed his integrity as a keeper of God's law. Beginning first then, let's consider how the Jewish leaders disputed the authority of Jesus as a teacher of God's word. Reading verses 14 through 18. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it? that this man has learning when he has never studied. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. The first thing we must understand from a contextual standpoint is that it had been an entire year since Jesus was in Jerusalem. Moreover, when John tells us that Jesus began teaching... It was actually the first time Jesus taught in Jerusalem since he entered his public ministry. In John chapters 2 and 5, Jesus gave no formal teaching during that period he was in Jerusalem. He worked miracles and had an interchange with the Jewish leaders over his, over his equality with the Father as the Son of God. But any public preaching and teaching of God's word had not surfaced till now. Furthermore, when we read here in verse 14 that it was about the middle of the feast that Jesus went up into the temple, the feast at hand was the feast of booths or tabernacles, as verse 2 tells us. And the fact that Jesus arrived in Jerusalem about the middle of the feast reveals it was perhaps the fourth day of the Jewish festival when Jesus showed up. These details are important since they are revealing how Jesus refused to make the kind of entrance his brothers were demanding he make, as recorded in verses 3 and 4 here in John 7. But once our Lord began teaching, he could not have chosen a more public venue than the temple. To be more specific, it was the outer temple court where great crowds of Jews would throng and thus it made the most appropriate place for Jewish rabbis to teach their followers. But the immediate reaction of the Jewish religious leaders is what John brings to our attention. In verse 15 we read, The Jews therefore marveled, saying, 
How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? The verb translated here, marvel, is an imperfect tense indicating that the moment Jesus opened his mouth and began teaching, the Jewish leaders stood in wonder and astonishment from start to finish at both the content and manner of our Lord's teaching. Yet, they did not hear him with gladness. They did not hear him with enthusiasm. They heard him with contempt. How is it, they queried, that this man, that's emphatic, that this man has learning when he has never studied? The essence of their question was in how it could even be possible that a man could teach as Jesus taught who had not passed through their educational system of rabbinical schooling. How could this man even know the scriptures with the knowledge he's demonstrating who has no diplomas on his wall, no rabbinic letters of recommendation? Furthermore, he doesn't even cite rabbinical authorities from the past or present. They could not explain his mastery of God's word since he did not come with the only credentials they accepted as worthy to fit a man to teach. They therefore disputed Jesus' authority as a capable teacher of God's word because he did not have the credibility they recognized. Well, how did Jesus respond to this? In verses 16 and 18, we read this. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Despite the fact that Jesus did not carry the credentials accepted by the Jewish leaders, which in their estimation gave him no authority to teach the word of God, yet... Our Lord essentially corrects their misjudgment by declaring that he is no self-appointed maverick teacher. In the first place, what he teaches does not originate with himself. Look at what he says. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. What our Lord says here in effect is this, the teaching I am proclaiming is not my own private invention and therefore isolated ideas of my own mind. Rather, what I teach is the doctrine of my Father who sent me. Reiterating the same truth, Jesus said in John 8, 28, I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. 
And then again, John 12, 49, Jesus declares, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. The obvious claim which Jesus makes concerning his teaching is that its origin is divine and therefore carries the authority of God himself. So, while he wasn't schooled in Ivy League rabbinical seminaries and doesn't back everything he teaches with what this or that rabbi said, none of this makes him a rogue teacher with no authority. Instead, what he teaches are the words of God himself. Because as the Son of God incarnate, he cannot teach anything other than what the Father has taught him to say. This means, therefore, that the authority Jesus carried to teach what he did far outweighed with infinite proportions what the Jewish leaders ever taught since they derived all their authority from fallible men. They quoted rabbis while Jesus spoke the words of God himself since he is God's son in the flesh. In the second place, the glory he seeks is not his own, but the glory of the Father who sent him. In verse 18, Jesus declares, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Since Jesus was no maverick teacher appointing himself to teach, then his aim and goal in everything he said or did was not for his glory, but the glory of his Father who sent him. Furthermore, because the glory Jesus sought was the glory of God the Father, he also contended that he wasn't an imposter. He was not a pretender. In him, Jesus says in reference to himself, in him there is no falsehood. But in contrast to Jesus, with false teachers, they always speak on their own authority, not by God's authority, because what they teach emanates from their own imagination. Therefore, the glory thereafter is never God's glory, but their own because they crave and they covet the praise of men. Ironically, this is the very thing Jesus condemned in the Jewish religious leaders. I say this is ironic because while the Jewish religious leaders castigated Jesus as an imposter, the truth is it was they, the Jewish religious leaders, who were the real imposters. This is why Jesus always called them out as hypocrites. They were Hypocrites. Everything they did in the name of God was an act. It was all for show. And so Jesus said of them, for instance, in Matthew 23, 5 through 7, that they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the praise of honor at 
feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. And in Mark 12 and verse 40, Jesus condemns them by how they even make long prayers for a pretense. In other words, their long prayers were nothing more than a fabrication. It was all a sham because they were after only one thing, their own glory, not God's. But with Jesus Christ, he never sought his own glory. Never. Indeed, as he says very plainly about himself in John 8 and verse 50, I do not seek my own glory. Well, there it is. He never sought his own glory. No, the glory which God's Son sought was the glory of his Father who sent him. His claims, therefore, and the teaching he gave can be trusted as true since there was nothing he said or did for his own self-promotion. Those who are nothing but about their own self-promotion can never be trusted. You see this in every walk of life. Now, where you really see this, where it really stands out, is, of course, in politics, which is the reason, you know, we don't trust politicians, right? Because a politician, by and large, I mean, I know there's at least one or two that may be honest, but by and large, by and large, a politician, they will say whatever will get your vote for them. Whatever is going to appease you, whatever is going to appease their constituents, whatever is going to gain them the favor of the people so that they can get your vote, that's what they'll communicate. And therefore, you never really know if they're telling the truth. Because whose promotion are they after? Their own promotion. They're just all about promoting themselves. But then again, we see this obviously in the world of religion. We, 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 see, it, we see it certainly among false teachers. I mean, this is a huge characteristic of false teachers. They are all about the promotion of themselves. Their ministries are all centered around their personality. But in order to gain a following, they have to pander to the people. They got, they've, got to, they've got to tell the people what the people want to hear. Why do you think Joel Osteen has the, the popularity that he has gained over the years? I mean, why? Because he is, in many respects, you could say, a politician in religious form. He panders to the flesh of the people. He tells the people what they want to hear. But see, he's all doing that to do what? Promote himself. And so therefore, you can't trust him because he's never going to tell you the truth. It's like when he was asked the question about the 2,000 plus Muslims who attend 
the religious organization that he heads up, I'm not going to dare call it a church because it's not a church, out there in Houston, Texas. And the question was raised to him, why don't you ever tell them that Jesus Christ is the only way to God? And I think he was honest in how he answered that question. He said, if I tell them that, they won't come back. It's all about promoting himself. But Jesus Christ never promoted Jesus Christ. Never promoted himself. He was always promoting the glory of the Father. He was never seeking his own glory. Never. Now, getting back here to our text, if, if one were to actually test and see if what Jesus teaches is truly from God, then... Then look at what our Lord says in verse 17. Now this is, this is a very interesting text. Verse 17, Jesus tells us how to prove him as true. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. This portion of our Lord's response to the Jewish leaders the Jewish leaders who were disputing his authority as a teacher of God's word, verse 17 is actually a rebuke to the Jewish leaders. It's a rebuke to these men. It is a backdoor censure of what they were not doing and what was never their heart's desire, which was to do God's will. In other words, listen closely. They had no desire to be taught by God, which in turn left them in the darkness of their unbelief with no discernment to see that what Jesus taught was in fact truly from God. That is the real point of the rebuke here in verse 17. Since they were unteachable and thereby unwilling to follow God's will, then the result of this stubborn pride was greater blindness to the truth which Jesus taught. Verse 17 was a censure on the Jewish religious leaders. The reason you don't get what I'm saying, the reason you can't discern and understand that everything I'm saying and teaching is truly from God and that I'm truly from God is because you're unwilling to do God's will. You're unteachable. You're unteachable. That's the essence of what the Lord is saying in verse 17. So then, regardless of what they debated over the authority Jesus had as a teacher of God's word, let's be very clear about this, their charges were false since they trusted man's word over God's word. But disputing the authority of Jesus as a teacher of God's word was not the only strife they stirred against our Lord. Moving on in our study, we see further that the Jewish leaders disputed the integrity of Jesus as a keeper of God's law. Not only did they dispute his authority as a teacher of God's word, but they disputed his integrity as 
a keeper of God's law. Reading verses 19 through 23, Jesus said, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? In this portion of John chapter 7, one might could say Jesus took the gloves off. Recalling what they accused him of doing a year earlier when he healed the paralytic on the Sabbath day, as recorded back in John chapter 5, and, and the Jewish leaders thereby condemned Jesus as a breaker of God's law. Here in John 7, 19 through 23, Jesus now completely turns the tables on them and calls them out as the hypocrites they really were. How does he do that? Two ways. First, he bluntly accuses them of not keeping God's law. This is the reason I say he's taking the gloves off now. He bluntly accuses them of not keeping God's law. In verse 19, our Lord says, Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? While they had the letter of the law, yet they did not render obedience to it as God required. In fact, to prove his point, God's law commands in Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. But Jesus exposes the violation of this command by the Jewish leaders when he says directly to them, why do you seek to kill me? Professing to be disciples of Moses and representatives of God's law, yet they were seeking to murder Jesus Christ? What utter hypocrisy. They were the pretenders. They were the actors playing the part of God's law keepers. And Jesus gives them no quarter on this point. None of you keeps the law. None of you. That's rather blunt. That's in your face. Second of all, Jesus exposes their double standard in applying God's law. He exposes their double standard in applying God's law. Ignoring completely the baseless accusation of the crowd who said Jesus had a demon for accusing the Jewish leaders of wanting to murder him, those people didn't have a clue what they were even talking about. Not a clue. But our Lord completely ignores them, and he moves right on to compare what he did in healing a man on the Sabbath to their circumcising a male infant on the Sabbath. Now look at what Jesus says in verses 22 and 23. 
Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath, I made a man's whole body well? In this question Jesus raises, he reminds the Jewish leaders that since circumcision was on certain occasions performed on the, on the Sabbath day, then how could they justly be enraged with him for making a man whole on that day as well? Circumcision was a work of necessity if the law of Moses was to be observed, which meant that if the eighth day, okay, remember Leviticus 12 verse 3, infant child has to be circumcised on the eighth day after birth. So if the eighth day following the infant's birth happened to land on the Sabbath day, then the child of necessity has to be circumcised. In other words, to perform the ceremonial rite of circumcision on the Sabbath day was a work of necessity out of obedience to the Mosaic law. And for these Jewish religious leaders, they saw no issue with that. No issue. What's the big deal? Well then, what's the difference in what Jesus did on the Sabbath? What's the difference? His work, now listen to this. His work in healing the paralytic was actually greater than the work of circumcision since by circumcision the body is wounded whereas Jesus restored a body and made it whole. Furthermore, Jesus proved what the Jewish religious leaders misunderstood about the Sabbath, that this command permits works of necessity and mercy. So that in the case of healing this man on the Sabbath day, Jesus performed both a work of mercy and necessity combined. Jesus therefore obeyed the commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy in the spirit and the letter of this divine law. But what our Lord is pressing on the Jewish leaders to see is their own inconsistency and hypocrisy when it comes to applying God's law. They condemn Jesus for performing a work of mercy and necessity on the Sabbath day, which, by the way, they themselves perform the same works. The same works. What is that? That's called a double standard. That's a double standard. This is why Jesus says to them, Are you angry with me? Are you, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? The, the sense of his question begs his hearers to see how irrational and unjustified their anger was with him. They had no just cause to be angry with the Lord Jesus Christ. He kept God's law and he kept it with perfect obedience. Whereas they 
broke the law. Indeed, they broke the whole law since the transgression, we're told in James chapter 5, the transgression of only one commandment violates the law in its entirety. Hmm. Well, how then does Jesus conclude this interchange with the Jewish religious leaders? How, how does he close this? Well, this is where we close our study. In John 7, 24, the Lord Jesus says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. What our Lord says here, and you need to understand this, what our Lord says here is not a suggestion. This is a command. A command. We're not being given an option here. We're being commanded. Commanded. And it is an imperative not only applied to his immediate audience in John chapter 7, but because it is the word of God, it applies just as true to all of us as well. So we need to take heed. We need to take heed. To the Jewish religious leaders, Jesus was charging them, commanding them to be fair, to be consistent, to take into account all the circumstances and to weigh all that God's word says concerning the Sabbath command. Furthermore, he was calling them out for judging him by merely what they could see without having all the facts. His command is to never judge anyone or anything by quick, hasty, flighty conclusions. Don't make assumptions you know nothing about. Don't do that. Don't be superficial in how you judge. To judge with right judgment is to be fair-minded. It is to be just. It is to be true to everything surrounding whatever person or circumstances are set in front of you. Now listen to this. There's far more going on below the surface than you can see. So therefore, you need to be very slow and very careful in how you judge. Now that's easy to understand, right? But that's hard to do. That's very easy to understand. But how many of us are actually guilty of judging by mere appearances? Oh, we're all, we're, we're all guilty? Hello? Not any of us in here are innocent. We're all guilty. The spirit, the essence of this critical command is that there is always more going on below the surface than what you can see 
than what you know. Because the last time I checked, I don't think anybody in here is omniscient. Our knowledge is extremely limited. So therefore, in how we pronounce judgments on others, we need to be real careful. Very slow. To deepen the application here, let me leave you with these very wise words of counsel from J.C. Ryle and his, his, own, his own exposition of John 7, 24. I'm going to quote Ryle here at length. Listen very closely to these very wise words. The principle here laid down is one of vast importance. Nothing is so common as to judge too favorably or too unfavorably of characters and actions from merely looking at the outward appearance of things. We are apt to form hasty opinions of others, either for good or evil, on very insufficient grounds. We pronounce some men to be good and others to be bad, some to be godly, others to be ungodly, without anything but appearance to aid our decision. We should do well to remember our blindness and to keep in mind this text. The bad are not always so bad, nor the good so good as they appear. A pot-sheared may be covered over with gilding and look bright outside. A nugget of gold may be covered with dirt and look like worthless rubbish. One man's work may look good at first and yet turn out in the end to have been done from the most corrupt motives. Another man's work may look very questionable at first and yet at last may prove Christ-like and truly godly. From rashly judging by appearances, may the Lord deliver us. And amen and amen to that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, omniscient, all-knowing God, it is astounding, Father, knowing with perfect knowledge everything you know about us, and we have not been cast into hell forever but only because of the blood and the righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ, do we stand before you with no condemnation. But yet, Lord, even as your people who still struggle and fight and, and have to put up with every day remaining sin, and how often, Lord, we yield to the flesh, and yet, what amazing patience, what amazing long-suffering that you show toward us knowing everything that you know.
that we say, that we think, that we do, that we feel, every motive. Your knowledge and your judgments are perfect. But Father, to us, as we have, as we have been confronted by your word this morning, we, we know and we recognize, indeed we confess, that our judgment of others is not a perfect judgment. And far too often, Father, we confess with great shame that we judge merely and only by what we can see with our eyes, not having, not knowing all the facts that are in front of us with what is before us. And for that, Lord, we humbly and earnestly ask your forgiveness. We pray, Father, that you would teach us by the Spirit through the Word how to be a people of God who judge with right judgment and not judge even as the Jewish religious leaders judged our Lord Jesus himself. Deliver us, O oh Lord, we pray, from rash, thoughtless, careless, quick, hasty judgments of others and circumstances that we really know nothing about. We trust in you, blessed Father, by the work of the Spirit, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that there will be a true repentance in all our hearts from such wrong judging and a true pursuit of the right kind of judging that will be fair-minded and consistent, that will be true and just. These things we earnestly pray and trust in you, Lord, for the grace we all need to this end to take heed and be obedient and yield ourselves to what your word has called us this day to do. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray and for his sake. Amen.